Good evening. President Biden announces sanctions against Russia as residents of the Donbass region celebrate Russia's decision to send peacekeeping troops. And New York prepares for cyber war. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022. To begin with, the three white men convicted of murder in Ahmed Arbery's shooting were found guilty of federal hate crimes today in a verdict that affirmed what family members and civil rights activists said all along, that he was chased down and killed because he was black. The verdict, handed down one day before the second anniversary of Arbery's death on February 23, 2020, was symbolic, coming just months after all three defendants were convicted of murder in a Georgia state court and sentenced to life in prison. Attorney General Merrick Garland had this to say after the verdict was read as he choked back tears. I, I cannot imagine the pain that a mother feels Uh, to have her son run down and then gunned down uh, while taking a jog on a public street. My heart goes out to her and to the family. Upon its founding, after the Civil War during Reconstruction, the Justice Department was tasked with bringing to justice those who used terror and violence to prevent black Americans from exercising their civil rights. The white supremacists who carried out those acts assume that they could operate outside the bounds of the law. Modern federal hate crime laws have enhanced the Justice Department's authority to prosecute violent acts motivated by bias. The Justice Department does not investigate or prosecute people because of their ideology or the views they hold, no matter how vile. But the Justice Department does have the authority and will not hesitate to act when individuals commit violent acts that are motivated by bias or hate. No one in this country should have to fear the threat of hate-fueled violence. Today's verdict makes clear that the Justice Department will continue to use every resource at its disposal to confront unlawful acts of hate and to hold accountable those who perpetrate them. Attorney General Merrick Garland the facts of the case weren't disputed during the hate crimes trial, but to, ba to back the hate crime charges, prosecutors showed roughly two dozen text messages and social media posts in which Travis McMichael used racist slurs and made derogatory comments about black people. The FBI wasn't able to access Greg McMichael's phone because it was encrypted. The trial has been taking place simultaneously with that of three former Minneapolis police officers who have been charged with violating the civil rights of George Floyd. Floyd. Floyd, a black man, died on May 25, 2020, when then-officer Derek Chauvin pinned him to the ground and pressed a knee to his neck for what authorities say was nine and a half minutes. Attorneys began delivering their closing arguments in that case today. And United States President Joe Biden today revealed new sanctions on Russian elites and two banks as the West tries to stop an all-out invasion of Ukraine by punishing Moscow for ordering troops to two regions it's recognized as independent nations. This is the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine as he indicated and asked permission to be able to do from his Duma. So today, I'm announcing the first tranche of sanctions to impose costs on Russia in response to their actions yesterday. We're implementing full blocking sanctions on two large Russian financial institutions. That means we've cut off Russia's government from Western financing. 
Starting tomorrow and continuing in the days ahead, we'll also impose sanctions on Russia's elites and their family members. They share in the corrupt gains of the Kremlin policies and should share in the pain as well. Because of Russia's actions, we've worked with Germany to ensure Nord Stream 2 will not, as I promised, will not move forward. I'm going to take robust action to make sure the pain of our sanctions is targeted at the Russian economy, not ours. We're closely monitoring energy supplies for any disruption. We're executing a plan in coordination with major oil-producing consumers and producers toward a collective investment to secure stability in global energy supplies. This will be uh, this will blunt gas prices. I want to limit the pain to the American people are feeling at the gas pump. This is critical to me. Yesterday, the world heard clearly the full extent of Vladimir Putin's twisted rewrite of history, going back more than a century as he waxed eloquently, noting that, well, I'm not going to go into it, but nothing in Putin's lengthy remarks indicate any interest in pursuing real dialogue on European security in the year 2022. And whatever Russia does next, we're ready to respond with unity, clarity, and conviction. President Biden, the European Union, Germany, and Britain also announced ways they'll hit Russia financially as they fear further incursion is to come, a move Moscow has consistently denied for months. Meanwhile, Donetsk locals gathered in the city's center yesterday evening to celebrate the recognition of the independent republic by Russia. Russian and local flags are seen flying as dozens of people watched the address of Russian President Putin announcing the recognition. They responded with cheers and joyous song. And that was the sound of fireworks. As the emotions ran high in Donetsk, the Russian ambassador to the United Nations, Vasily Nabenzia, asked the Security Council to hold their emotions in check. I would like to call upon our Western colleagues to think twice, to set emotions to one side and not to make the situation worse. No one other than you can hold back the militaristic plans of Kiev and force it to stop the shelling and provocations against the Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics, who in these new condition, which in these new conditions could have extremely dangerous consequences. In accordance with the agreements that were signed today and on the basis of their uh, requests from the Republic, peacekeeping functions on their territories will be carried out by the armed forces of the Russian Federation. In today's statements, most of you did not find any place for the more than four million of residents of Donbass. And as Vasily Nebenzia, the Russian ambassador to the UN, his Ukrainian counterpart, Sergei Kislysa, was having none of it, demanding Russian troops leave and accusing Russia of violating the 2014 Minsk agreements hammered out after Russia seized the Crimea earlier that year. We are all vaccinated. There are vaccines for COVID. It is because of the virus that has so far no vaccine. The virus that hit the United Nations and the virus that is spread by the Kremlin. Today, the entire membership of the United Nations is under attack. 
The internationally recognized borders of Ukraine have been and will remain unchangeable. Regardless of any statements and actions by the Russian Federation. Ukraine unequivocally qualifies the recent actions by the Russian Federation as violation of sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine. Sergei Kislazia is Ukraine's UN ambassador. Professor of history at the University of Arizona is David Gibbs. He's written extensively about NATO. He says the West is leaving out a big part of the story, the long historical ties between millions of Ukrainians and Russia. The conflict you're reading about or hearing about in the United States, it's not really the way it's playing out. Ukraine is very divided itself on the issue of NATO and about the relationship with Russia versus the West. You have a center and west of the Ukraine that is Ukrainian speaking and very oriented towards the United States and Western Europe. But then you have an east and south that's Russian speaking or bilingual that looks to Russia as their protector. The areas under contention, the Donbass, is very likely the people who live there welcome uh, Russia involvement, Russian intervention. Uh, that doesn't make it right. The annexation of Crimea notably was an illegal act. But uh, again, this is not a united Ukraine by any means at all. The U.S. really has a major role in causing this in the first place. In 1990, the U.S. made an agreement with the then dying Soviet Union not to expand NATO into the east. Not only was there an agreement, but it was reaffirmed again and again and again. Multiple, just yesterday, a new document came out of the British archives affirming that not only did U.S. officials make this promise, German officials made it as well. The United States violated that agreement repeatedly. They expanded NATO in the East in violation of their promise not to. The final straw for the Russians in 2014, there was a pro-Russian president in Ukraine, Yanukovych, who was overthrown almost certainly with significant U.S. involvement in the coup. And Russia's really resented that kind of meddling in the region. And even more so, there have been plans to bring Ukraine into NATO, again, in violation of the 1990 agreement. And Russia insists that will never happen. America's insistence that it will eventually bring Ukraine into NATO and refusal to negotiate on this point or to reconsider it is extremely destabilizing. Biden said Putin should realize that this is not the past. This is what he called the reality of 2022. He could say that if he wants to. And what he's saying, in essence, is the fact that the United States has been violating a basic agreement over 30 years isn't a big deal. But it should come as no surprise that the Russians do see it as a big deal. And they have a strong case in that regard, a very strong case, I would say. And this very likely still could be resolved if the U.S. would give a firm written agreement, an ironclad agreement, that Ukraine would be neutral. It would not join either power bloc and specifically would not join NATO. I think it's frankly very reckless of the United States to be pushing this NATO expansion. How would the United States feel if Russia were setting up an agreement, uh, an alliance with Mexico with the possibility of bases in Mexico in violation of an agreement not to? It's not in America's interest or the people of America to have a new Cold War because that's exactly where we're heading with this. What is a Cold War? What you had in the Cold War was an almost continuous half-century uh, circumstance of being on the brink of war, particularly nuclear war, and that was continuous threat during the Cold War. We're really almost getting back to that point right now. You know, what the United States is doing is it's insisting its need to expand its power globally 
should come before global security. We are trading away global security in favor of U.S. power. And that seems like a very bad trade to me. This is playing with fire, what Biden is doing. And I, I think it's not a very good idea. What do you think the United States sees they have the benefit from this? The principal one is the United States likes the prestige and power of being able to project its influence over the entire globe. And NATO is the, one of the major instruments of that power and prestige. Another consideration is what Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, called the military-industrial complex benefits from NATO expansion. And indeed, one of the major lobby groups lobbying in favor of NATO expansion was weapons-producing companies all along. I think the beneficiaries, though, are really very tiny in comparison to everyone else who's going to lose from this process. David Gibbs is professor of history at the University of Arizona. He's written extensively about NATO. Meanwhile, as the possibility of war grows, residents of the self-proclaimed Lugansk People's Republic left for Russia on a fourth evacuation train yesterday. Dozens of people, including elderly people and children, could be seen gathered at Lugansk railway station waiting for their departure to Russia. As shelling was heard from the city, uh, city of Lugansk and black columns of smoke were seen rising over the town. An independent monitoring organization with observers in the region is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, or OSCE. They reported 703 ceasefire violations in the region, including 332 explosions. In the previous 24 hours, OSCE, OSCE says there were 579 ceasefire violations. And anti-war activists and progressives have been mobilizing in the United States, but there are different approaches to the growing crisis. While some have been giving quiet support to Russia, standing up to what some call NATO aggression, others say the way forward is to blame both sides equally and work for a ceasefire. The executive director of Nonviolence International is Michael Beer. Nonviolence International is calling for a robust peace monitoring mission by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. At the moment, there is a peace mission there on the contact line between the Ukrainian forces and the Donbass forces. That mission has been understaffed, and we are not getting clear information about what's going on, who's violating and where. So we're wanting the United States to support that. In fact, the United States withdrew its observers last week. And it's particularly at times like this that we need peace observers. The Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe is a really valuable security architecture that is the future of Europe. It's not a Cold War-based antagonistic thing. It's an inclusive umbrella. We want to strengthen the OSCE and its peace mission in Ukraine, and we want the United States to reverse its withdrawal of peace monitors and to support bolstering up this peace monitoring effort. They're ramping up some serious sanctions against this country, and they're planning even more serious ones. And The United States policy is unfortunately badly contaminated. There may be some good intentions here to stop Russian aggression, but unfortunately, the United States appears to be just playing big power politics by opposing the aggression of Russia when Israel annexes its neighboring territories, when Morocco annexes its neighboring territories, all through the use of force. And the United States supports this militarily, politically, 
it's incredibly hypocritical. We are left then with the situation in which the United States appears to be opposing Russia's policies, not on international law and the idea that it's bad to and horrifying to uh, change your boundaries and to grab territory through use of force from a neighboring country, but it's because the United States wants to engage in a kind of a Cold War, big power political game. There's lots of Russian-speaking people all over Ukraine who would be happier with more Russian influence. Ukrainians today, today, not 100 years ago, 200 years ago, but today, the vast majority of Ukrainians are happy, are reasonably happy or satisfied with a Ukrainian state. And the vast majority do not support a Russian invasion, a new Russian empire that swallows them up. Putin may have, living in his bubble, may have written some sort of scenario that he thinks that the Russian empire of old is a golden era to look back to and that the rest of the neighboring countries would really love to join back up with the Russian empire. But I'm skeptical. Let me ask you about NATO. NATO. Russians do have legitimate complaints about and NATO. NATO has not been just purely a benign defensive alliance. They were in Afghanistan for 20 years, which is very far from Europe. They helped initiate the horrific Libyan civil war through active intervention there. They redrew the boundaries of Yugoslavia through bombing campaign, which really got this boundary redrawing process going in the 1990s that we now see Russia doing in a number of places. NATO, unfortunately, has not performed or been a purely defensive alliance. You can understand why Russia has legitimate security concerns about an expanded NATO. We are now more than 75 years after the end of World War II. There is no good reason for the United States to be having troops in Europe. We need a new security architecture in Europe that does not include the United States, that's not a Cold War relic that is creating more conflict in Europe. We should be withdrawing our troops from Europe and disbanding NATO in return for Russia withdrawing from a number of these states that it has now recognized as independent and the Crimea. That would offer an opportunity, this grand bargain, for a new security architecture in Europe that can meet everybody's needs. Michael Beers, the executive director of Nonviolence International. And here in New York, Governor Kathy Hochul unveiled a new Cybersecurity Command Center today that she said will help defend against hacks of government agencies and prepare municipalities, communication systems, and transportation networks for attacks. The new Joint Security Operations Center, headquartered in Brooklyn, will come online as New York government, government entities face a constant barrage of attacks. And as, Ukraine, as the introduction of strong international sanctions against Russia over the crisis in Ukraine presage possible cyber attacks from Russian sources. Given the increasingly volatile geopolitical circumstances with Russia and Ukraine, and we just heard from President Biden moments ago on uh, the advancing troops from Russia, uh, we can no longer act independently. And that is, has been the case where the state of New York has its plan, city of New York has a plan, our mayors our local governments throughout the state of New York. And that is not sustainable in light of the threats that we're seeing. 
And we can't expect cities and counties to go it alone. They don't have the resources. They don't have the technological know-how. And we're rethinking our entire approach to cybersecurity really based on the model that was put together after 9-11 when we had a fight and talk about how we can bring people together for our physical security. And that was the genesis of the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Over the weekend, I thought it was serious enough that I convened members of my cabinet on Sunday, uh, asking all of them to come together and tell me what steps they've been taken and where there may be any shortcomings in our statewide operations, as well as our critical infrastructure. As I mentioned, the power authority, our utility grids, our transportation networks, our water. So I wanted to assess our ongoing cybersecurity efforts. So today I'm very proud to announce the first in the nation statewide joint security operations center that is where we are today and this is going to be the nerve center for our cyber operation we know cyber attacks will continue to happen and in the long term this joint security operations center which we call jsoc you always have to have an acronym if you're talking about uh, anything in law enforcement jsoc this will be the tip of the spear for our cyber security operations in the state and that's the governor. Mayor Eric Adams also signed an executive order requiring every city agency to appoint a liaison for cybersecurity to the main software office in City Hall. Adams says former Mayor Bill de Blasio warned him the gravest threat the city faced was potential fallout from a major hack. We run our city on technology. When you hack that technology, you are hacking our entire city. And it's not only limited uh, to the fearfulness of what's happening in the Ukraine, but it's also here in the United States. And we must be vigilant and meet the threat with our action. And we're doing that now to protect our crucial uh, infrastructure because we know if we fail, uh, we are going to make New Yorkers vulnerable to the actions that comes with it. And this is not hypothetical. This is not something we're just talking about that's distance removed. These attacks and attempted attacks are happening every day. Those outside entities are attempting to hold cities and municipalities hostage. Mayor Adams, last year the city's law department was hacked. Adams said the new agency liaisons would help ensure that city offices implemented the best cybersecurity practices. Hochul said there were no immediate increase in the threat of hacks from Russia or Russian allied entities, but that the new command center would help prepare the state's various government software systems for any possible attacks. And finally, a bill that would allow hemp farmers in New York to obtain licenses to grow adult-use cannabis was signed into law today by Governor Kathy Hochul. The new law has the potential to expand the number of licensed cannabis growers in the state, just as the expected multi-billion dollar market is about to take off in New York. Hochul said, I am proud to sign this bill, which positions New York's farmers to be the first to grow cannabis and jumpstart the safe, equitable, and inclusive new industry we are building. The law will allow hemp growers to obtain conditional cultivation licenses to grow cannabis plants outdoors or in a greenhouse for up to two years. The measure will also allow farmers to manufacture and distribute cannabis flower products without an adult use processor or distribution license until June 2023. The measure's approval comes less than a year after state lawmakers and then Governor Andrew Cuomo agreed to the passage of the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, which set up the legal framework for the sale of adult use marijuana products in New York. And I never thought, and this is a personal aside, that I would ever read a story like this in my life. It's quite amazing. 
And that's some of the news for Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022-2222. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.